Hi, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. My name is Tracy Morgan, your host, as always, and uh, I want to wish everyone a Happy New Year. Today, uh, we'll be speaking with Dr. Robert Stollero uh, regarding his book, World Affectivity Trauma, on Heidegger and post-Cartesian psychoanalysis. Uh, Dr. Stollero uh, holds two doctorates, actually, interestingly, uh, one in philosophy from UC Riverside, which he got in 2007, and another in clinical psychology uh, from Harvard from 1970. So we see that he's been uh, thinking for a long time about both arenas of um, psychoanalysis and philosophy. He is a founding member at the Institute for Contemporary Psychoanalysis in L.A., and um, also at the Institute for the Psychoanalytic Study of Subjectivity uh, here in New York City. He's the author of many books, let's see, aside from uh, the one we'll be talking to him uh, about today. In 2007, he published Trauma and Human Existence, Autobiographical, Psychoanalytic, and Philosophical Reflections. He's really a, um, he's prolific, to say the least. He received the Distinguished Scientific Award from the Division of Psychoanalysis of the APA in 1995, the Haskell Norman Prize for Excellence in Psychoanalysis from the San Francisco Center for Psychoanalysis in 2011, and he also is a recipient of the Hans W. Lowald Memorial Award from the International Forum for Psychoanalytic Education. That was in 2012. What's new today in um, for our program is that I have a co-interviewer. I decided to invite Josie Oppenheim, whose bio I will give in just a moment, to join me because I, I know Josie and um, I've always thought she has a philosophical mind, even though she's not at all trained as a philosopher, as a mind that's given to taking in abstraction and and theory and abstract com- concepts. And she's also an analyst friend, and I uh, thought it would be terrific to try something new. So we both read the book and spent time conversing with each other about it in advance of the interview and came up with our questions, sort of working through questions we had about the book together. A brief bio for Josie is she is uh, on the faculty at the Center for Modern Psychoanalysis. She's uh, a co-director of the New York Adoption Center for Psychotherapy and Research and was on the editorial board of IFP, um, the International Forum for Psychoanalytic Education, which gave Dr. Stollero his award recently. She was, interestingly, co-founder and artistic director of the Stellar, Stella, Stellar, Stella, from Brooklyn, of the Stella Adler Conservatory Theater, which is uh, quite famous for those of you involved in uh, theater. And she's published numerous articles and she lectures widely on psychoanalytic and cultural topics. I've heard her give a paper on um, on Michael Jackson, a psychoanalytic paper on Michael Jackson. It was quite good. Her most recent article is entitled The Intersection of the Personal and the Political, which is uh, in uh, Cleo Psyche, an investigation uh, into Beyond's uh, Messiah personality with respect to the playwright Arthur Miller. She's also a recipient of the Phyllis W. Meadow Award of Excellence for Excellence in Psychoanalytic Writing, and she's in private practice in New York City. Anyway, so enough said about enough said. So let's move on to the interview. Up on deck, just so people know, is uh, Robert Hinchelwood has a book on the single case study, and having just completed one myself, I um, am going to see if I can sit 
sit down and work my way through that. And so we may have the distinguished object relations uh, analyst from Britain, Robert Hinchelwood, on the program with us shortly. Okay, so without further ado, let's move on to the interview. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. We'd like to welcome today Dr. Robert Stollero, who will be speaking with us about his book, World Affectivity, Trauma, Heidegger, and Post-Cartesian Psychoanalysis. And we also have with us today Josie Oppenheim, who is a uh, psychoanalyst in New York City on the faculty of the Center for Modern Psychoanalytic Studies. And she has very graciously agreed to jump in and help because she has a background, I think, that is more sensitive, perhaps, to certain aspects of philosophy and intersubjectivity than I do. So I am happy to have her here, Josie Oppenheim, and Dr. Robert Stollero. So to get started, Bob, as you said, I can call you the first question that I ask all authors is um, what was it that that drove you or prompted you or inspired you to to write this book? Okay. Well, that's actually a very long story. Shall I tell it? Of course. <laughs> All right. <laughs> we like, we're happy to have well, long stories. It's, uh... <laughs> okay. Well, the, the story actually goes back to the early 1970s, uh, during which time George Atwood and I embarked upon a series of psychobiographical studies of the personal subjective origins of psychoanalytic theories. And we showed in the case of in our studies of Freud and Jung and Wilhelm Reich and Otto Rank that in each case the theorizing was significantly shaped by the emotional world of the theorists. And we we collected these studies together in our first book together, Faces in a Cloud, Subjectivity and Personality Theory. And in the concluding chapter of that book, we reasoned that since psychoanalytic theories can be shown to be significantly derived from the um, personal subjective world of the theorist, that what we needed was a framework large enough and encompassing enough to account not only for the phenomena that various theories address, but for the theories themselves. And uh, so we, at, at that point, we um, gave some broad initial brushstrokes for such a framework, which we called psychoanalytic phenomenology. It was a framework that took the uh, subjective world of the individual, the personal subjective world of the individual as its central theoretical construct and clinical focus. And once we had done that back in the 70s, George and I um, started to work even more so than we had before. We decided to, we, we started to read voraciously in continental phenomenology over, over the next Two or three years, two or three decades, I should say. And, um, as part of that ongoing project, in the year 2000, I put together a leaderless study group on Heidegger's being in time, and which, which we uh, spent a year doing a close reading of. And a couple of things struck me. The first thing that struck me was that, 
what might be called Heidegger's ontological contextualism. Well, let me back up for a moment. Uh, we, going back to our psychoanalytic phenomenology, we found that a, uh, an assiduous focus on phenomenology, that is, on, on the uh, on worlds of emotional experience, led inexorably to the to an appreciation of the contexts, the relational contexts in which such worlds take form. So, so our, our framework eventually evolved into what we called a phenomenological contextualism. So, getting back to Heidegger and being in time. Uh, a couple of things struck me about being in time that was very relevant to our project. One was, might be called Heidegger's ontological contextualism. That is the, the way in which being always takes shape contextually. As, 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 that, that being could not be understood apart from the world in which it takes form. And uh, I quickly saw that Heidegger's ontological contextualism uh, could serve as a kind of philosophical foundation for a psychoanalytic phenomenological contextualism, which we eventually came to call post-Cartesian psychoanalysis. And that's, the second thing that struck me fairly early was Heidegger's uh, phenomenological description of anxiety, existential anxiety, angst. And when I first read uh, Heidegger's account in Being in Time, I nearly fell off my chair because I, because I saw in Heidegger's description uh, a close similarity to a description that I had written a couple of years before of a traumatized state that I had experienced. And I, I felt that um, I saw in Heidegger's phenomenology of angst and his account of angst um, a philosophical, important philosophical tools for grasping the existential meaning of psychological trauma. So once I had that insight, I was motivated to get serious about philosophy, and so I went back to school in 2003, uh, worked on a on my second doctorate, a doctorate in philosophy, and my dissertation was on. Uh, trauma and human existence, uh, which also eventuated in a book with that title, Trauma and Human Existence. Right. And the current book um, that, that's under discussion now was a, a more philosophical version of the, the first book was addressed primarily to, to clinicians. The second book, uh, the one we're discussing now, was addressed both to to psychoanalysts and philosophers and was an attempt to show both how uh, Heidegger's existential philosophy enriches what we call post-Cartesian psychoanalysis and how post-Cartesian psychoanalysis can enrich existential philosophy, enrich and expand existential philosophy. So that's that's the short answer to a long-winded <laughs> story. <laughs> That's the kind of answers we like, actually. It's pretty, it's pretty juicy and uh, and rich answer. Josie, did you have a question that was uh, emerging as you were listening? Uh, uh, well, a very small question, which maybe 
hopefully we'll provoke another very long answer. <laughs> <laughs> just, just feed us, feed us. Very good. <laughs> uh, I remember in reading this book that you uh, parenthetically say that, of course, a psychobiographical uh, self uh, of the self or of oneself mm-hmm. uh, is not possible. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I, although perhaps that's uh, obvious and self-evident, I, I wasn't quite sure why that was so. So I wonder if you could say something well, about that. You know, one of the things that I have found over the decades is that I'm, I'm always revising my views. Hmm. So uh, George Atwin and I did a, together a psychobiographical study of ourselves in the form of a dialogue, uh-huh. which was, the title of it is... Uh, the Demons of, Phil- of Phenomenological Contextualism. And it was published last were year. Who the, the demons? The what? <laughs> What's that? Who, the demon, who are the demons? Our demons. Yes, I see. Our, our demons. Our own, uh, wonderful. Wow. Respect, our own respective histories of trauma. Uh-huh. And how they, how those, his history and my history sort of intersected and showed up in our theorizing. Hmm. So that was published in the Psychoanalytic Review last year. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a chapter, actually have a, we have a revised uh, second edition of uh, our first major explication of phenomenological, of, of uh, psychoanalytic phenomenology structures of subjectivity, which was published in 1984. A, uh, Second revised expanded edition of that is in the pipeline right now and will be published in May. And that chap, that article that I just mentioned, the demons of phenomenological contextual, contextualism, will be a chapter in the revised version of that. Okay, that sounds really interesting. I'm very eager to uh, see it. I, mm. I wonder if there's something about the talking back and forth that uh, made it seem more possible. Well, yes, because um, if you're familiar with how we think about psychological structures, we think about them as what we call pre-reflective organizing principles. Or you could call them meaning structures, you could call them cognitive affective schemas. Uh, These are the the principles according to which we give meanings to various experiences that we encounter in our lives. And it's very difficult to do a self-analysis because the act of self, the act of reflecting on oneself will come to be organized by the same principles that you're trying to reflect upon. Mm-hmm. Sure. So it's sort of like a snake trying to feed itself by eating its own tail. Tautological, yeah. Okay. So, so it's very helpful to have a dialogue with someone who's organized differently. Uh-huh. And so that's why we did it in the form of a dialogue between us, a conversation between us. Okay, that's. I had a actually, I have a question for you, um, uh, which is uh, on the pre-reflective, and um, in which you speak of it as other than repressed material, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And as I was reading uh, about this idea of the pre-reflective, I, I thought of uh, Don Stern, um, which I think mm-hmm. you refer to him, his concept of unformulated experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I also thought about Christopher Bolas with his uh, notion of the unthought known. Um, I wanted uh-huh. to ask you, um, I don't think Bolas is quoted in the book, but Stern is. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering, how do you 
if you're aware of Bolas's idea and you are aware of Stern's, how do you see your uh, your thinking on the pre-reflective in relationship um, to their uh, their concepts? Well, it's actually very different from both of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Don Stern calls uses the concept of unformulated experience to explain what he calls association. Um, I think it's kind of a, I think unformulated is kind of a misnomer for what he's describing. I think he should have said disformulated because it's not that experience was never formulated or couldn't be formulated. It's that it's actively prevented from being formulated. Mm-hmm. So I think a more accurate term to, this, to describe what he was, what he calls association, would be disformulated experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, unformulated to me means that it never gets articulated enough in the first place ever to be disformulated. Mm-hmm. Now the interesting thing is, though, if we if we think of Stern as talking about disformulated experience. That is actually almost identical to how George and I, going back all the way back to 1980, described repression. As we described repression as an interruption of the process of bringing somatic affective experience into language. So it's it's a it's an aborting of symbolization, or you could say an aborting of linguisticality, or you could say an, an aborting of, artic- of linguistic or symbolic articulation, or you could say an aborting of of, of a symbolic or linguistic formulation. So it's very closely similar to what Stern, many years later, called unformulated experience, and what I think he should have called disformulated experience. Uh, what would correspond to Unformulated experience, we call the uh, unvalidated unconscious. And what we mean by that, in contrast to repression, or the aborting of civilization, or the aborting of linguisticality, uh, the unvalidated unconscious has to do with those experiences that were never, that never received sufficient attunement in a symbolic or linguistic mode to have been articulated symbolically or linguistically in the first place. Mm -hmm. So that would seem to me to more to correspond to something unformulated. It was never formulated formulated enough to be disformulated. And I think that that corresponds what we call the unvalidated unconscious, where emotional experience remains largely somatic and unarticulated symbolically or linguistically. I think that might correspond fairly closely to Bolas's concept of the unthought known, mm-hmm. so, something that's known in your bones, so to speak, but not in a symbolic or linguistic way. Yeah. Now, the, what we call the pre-reflective unconscious doesn't correspond to any of those things. Uh, the, what we call the pre-reflective unconscious refers to the fact that the principles or meanings, according to which we organize our experience, ordinarily do not enter the domain of reflective self-awareness. So normally we just experience our experiences. We don't reflect on the principles or meanings that organize them. 
Uh, it often takes a prolonged dialogical process like psychoanalysis in order for those meanings or principles to uh, reliably enter the domain of reflective self-awareness. Um, so I'm wondering, I have a question about that. Um, mm-hmm. It's maybe a big question, at least uh, Josie mm-hmm. and I thought it was a big question. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you seem game for big questions, so okay. Um, okay. I was thinking, uh, what would you say, uh, or how would you describe what a patient uh, in a, who's undergone a post-Cartesian psychoanalysis, what is it that they come to know? Is that related to this understanding the pre-reflective well, certainly that would, that would be a large part of it. That is the, sometimes the way I put it is, is this way that we, by the way, the, the important organizing principles, just to re- relate it back to trauma, the important organizing principles that we deal with in psychoanalytic therapy are those that are born, that, t- that take form in context of trauma, whether extreme trauma or the more subtle cumulative traumas that can occur throughout the course of development. So uh, one of the things I often say is that we never get we never get rid of our organizing principles. Right. That is, it's like uh, Douglas MacArthur said about old soldiers. You know, old soldiers never die; they just fade away. Yeah. Well, well, these pre-reflective organizing principles don't even fade away. But what happens in the course of a good analytic process is that they lose their grip. And they lose their grip for two reasons. One is that they gradually come to enter the uh, the realm of reflective self-awareness. So they no longer operate pre-reflectively and automatically as they did before. And secondly, uh, through cancer's experiences with the analysts, Alternative principles and transference analysis for the analysts, alternative principles uh, for organizing experience gradually take form. So the old ones, what I call the killer organizing principles, are no longer the only game in town. Mm-hmm. So be- because of these two things, reflective self-awareness and uh, alternative principles for organizing experience, the lag time that it takes for a patient to climb out of the, those killer organizing principles gets shorter and shorter. Mm-hmm. They don't disappear, but their grip is loosened because because of the two things that I've described. Hmm. And do you do you use that term? I didn't see that in this book, but maybe I miss it. Killer organizing principles. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. No, I think that's just that's just the way I talk. You just, I like talk, I you're talking from this. I don't street. think I've ever written that. <laughs> I think that could be the title of a, of a, a chapter somewhere. Yeah. Josie, did you and they know? are. They yeah. are. I mean, they, they really are. Don't we know? Destructive. <laughs> yeah. To, yeah. Absolutely. I, I, I like, I like the phrasing. Josie, do you have mm-hmm. a question that's emerging? Uh, well, maybe. she has, she has really incredible questions. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I don't know that anything's emerging from this conversation, but, uh, maybe just because we're talking about psychoanalysis, um, Heidegger uh, talks about guilt. This was one of the mm-hmm. things that I found uh, a little bit hard to penetrate. Yeah. Uh, he talks about guilt as a positive aspect of authentic being. 
and I wondered about your understanding of that conceptualization of guilt. Uh, I wondered mm -hmm. also if there is any relationship at all uh, to um, the guilt and reparations that Klein speaks about from a developmental and psychical perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, and sort of adding on to that question, maybe it's a separate one. Uh, do you think that Heidegger, that his notion of guilt, I mean, it must in some way have been influenced by his, uh, by the Catholicism in his upbringing. And I wondered if you thought that he uh, perhaps transformed the very significant meaning and place that guilt holds in Catholicism for this, uh, mm -hmm. for this text that he wrote. Or okay, that's, that's a really good question. Let, yeah. let me say first that in order to get what Heidegger's talking about when he uses affect language in being in time, you have to forget everything you know about those affect states as a psychoanalyst. For example, oh. <laughs> angst, existential anxiety that Heidegger describes has nothing to do with clinical anxiety. It's okay. a completely different phenomenology, which I can get into later if you like. And the same, the same applies to guilt. That is, uh, you, you have to forget about everything you learn about guilt as a psychoanalyst and read it freshly. Because what Heidegger means by guilt in being in time is not moral guilt. It has nothing to do with moral guilt. In fact, it's the condition for the possibility of moral guilt. And so what he means by existential guilt is um, a, a sense of being accountable to oneself for oneself. It's a sense of being accountable and responsible for how one is existing. And that's why he calls it a basis for authenticity, because that's one of the hallmarks of authentic existing in, in Heidegger's philosophy, namely to be accountable and responsible to oneself for the way that one exists, for one's choices in life. Um, now, I think, uh, so I don't think it doesn't have anything to do with guilt as it, as it appears in psychoanalysis, and especially in Klein. Well, I just, you know, as you said that, some little, tiny little thought crossed my mind, mm -hmm. which was, in a, I'm wondering if in a certain sense that couldn't be related to the depressive position, uh, you know, a, a sort of coming to a responsibility to oneself is not so different mm -hmm. than coming to a responsibility for one's objects. Right. Um, so, uh, I mean, I'm not, I, I don't mean to be trying to force it into a Kleinian view, but, uh, and I was about uh -huh. to totally give it up, but at that point, it just occurred to me that maybe there is a little something in, in connection. I don't think so, because okay. that, that's more like that would be Kleinian guilt would be more like moral guilt. That's not what Heidegger is talking about. Hmm. Feeling responsible for others has more to do with a kind of moral guilt. Yes, but at the same uh, time, it's a sort of coming into being as a as a as a full person. Mm -hmm. at, at that point. Yeah. No, I think it's very different. I think okay. this has to do with, um, <clears throat> well, if you want to contrast Heidegger's concept of authenticity with inauthenticity, inauthenticity in Heidegger means that one is understanding oneself according to some kind of conventional interpretiveness. Hmm. That one 
exists just as one ex- as uh, conventionally prescribed. Mm-hmm. So, in inauthenticity, in inauthenticity, individual account- accountability, self differentiation has more to do with self differentiation, actually, mm-hmm. ontological guilt. Um, that, okay. that that rather than hold, holding some impersonal, conventional, normative authority accountable for how it exists, one holds oneself accountable as an individual for one's decision-making and choices. So that's all it means. And, and Heidegger argued that this existential guilt or ontological guilt is the condition for the possibility of moral guilt. That is, you have to be accountable to yourself as such for your existing before you can feel morally accountable to yourself. That's mm-hmm. that's a tall order. Yes, that's just what I was thinking. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking I would totally fail at that, yeah. but okay. Mm. <laughs> and I was as well. <laughs> We're feeling we're feeling diminished by Heidegger now. Wait, all right. Ah, so just to make matters worse, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> the other dimension of authenticity is in Heidegger is an owning an owning up to finitude, what he calls authentic being toward death, which means that uh, the ultimate possibility of death is always defining how we're intelligible to ourselves as we live. Wait. So yeah, we're like, where's the? What's? Sorry, I'm I'm blown away because I'm thinking. Well, in the psychoanalytic, let's say in the consulting room, I mean, the patients, whither goes the patient's narcissism and this tall order? Sorry, I didn't understand. Well, I mean, I'm I'm just thinking about the 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 um. Uh, well, for you know, to use sort of a conventional idea, the the enormous amount of ego strength it would take to really under to to really um, uh, situate oneself and and be sort of successful in the Heideggerian schema. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and of course, you know, our patients and um, you know, perhaps myself too. You know, don't mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? I'm thinking, well, you know. What does it take to What does it take to get there? What does it take for a person to? Mm-hmm. It's a, I, I don't know. It just right. it's, it's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot, and I think that's. Uh, I think in, in Heidegger's uh, perspective, authenticity is not something you would you would achieve once and for all. But it's ah. a, I think Heidegger saw authenticity and inauthenticity as existing better. on a continuum. And that one is, as one charts one's course through life, one is more or less authentic at any particular point. So one of the central ideas in my book is that trauma plunges us into a state of mind similar to Heidegger's existential angst, which he explained as um, disclosing an authentic being toward death. That is, trauma, emotional trauma plunges us, forces us to uh, acknowledge aspects of our finitude, aspects of our human li- limitedness, right. and therefore plunges us into a form of authentic being toward death. 
Mm-hmm. So getting back to what I said about um, these affect terms, not really that, that you, you have to forget about the psychoanalytic meaning of these affect term, terms because angst in Heidegger's framework uh, is not an anxious apprehension. It's a, it's, a, it's a state of mind that has two components. The everyday world loses its significance, loses its meaningfulness. Because the world, because, well, I'll, I'll get to the cause later. <laughs> and secondly, one feels uncanny, the one feels not at home in the everyday world. Now, these are two components that, in my view, actually characterize a, a serious traumatized state. Mm-hmm. Not regular old clinical anxiety, but a, tra- a traumatized state. Mm-hmm. Um. Josie? Josie has some really good questions that are related to what you just said. I well, think. yeah, but I, I'm not so sure here uh, because I seem to keep I seem to keep wanting to bring up other people's uh, definitions, which may lead me again into a similar uh, place. But um, but the I, audience I, will be interested in that. Okay, I uh, so, yeah. I. I'm, I as I was reading about the uncanny and your experience mm-hmm. with the uncanny, um, which was very uh, vivid, mm-hmm. um, I began to think of Freud's idea about the uncanny, which I've always been interested in, mm-hmm. uh, which is that, as I remember it, that it's something we experience, it's an experience we have that we believe in the moment is actually supernatural after we have given up the supernatural and no longer Mm -hmm. believe in it. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was wondering whether that related at all in your mind to Heidegger's idea about the uncanny, which which comes about, as uh, you have said, uh, being aware of our uh, finitude. Um, Mm -hmm. And then you say, because of your personal trauma, you were deadened to your everyday world and felt that you were a strange and alien being, not of this Mm -hmm. world and that you felt uncanny. Um, right. And I wondered whether you were equating this feeling of isolation, essentially. You felt the world was not there for you at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, equating that with be, with uh, Heidegger's being towards death state, mm-hmm. which he equates with authentic, authenticity, but also with the uncanny. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say yes to your last question. That uh-huh. the, and it might relate to Freud in sort of an indirect way. That insofar, well, why does the everyday world lose its significance? Let me talk about that for a minute first. I think in, in Heidegger's philosophy, and I think he was right, a lot of our way of being in everydayness represents an evasion of finitude an evasion of being toward death. And, um, I mean, you could, you could see it in a lot of the language that people use when they speak about death. Uh, they speak about it as if it's just some distant event that hasn't occurred yet, so we don't really have to worry about it or think about it. Um, or it's something that happens to other people. Or if you listen to some of the Heidegger calls it idle talk, this kind of evasive language uh, of everydayness. If you listen to some of the language at a funeral, a memorial, it's um, it's kind of covering over what has actually happened. What has actually happened is that uh, 
a human being has become a a um, a thing, a non-living thing, a corpse. It's horrifying, but it's all covered over by things. Uh, you know, he's gone to a better place or rest in peace or kind of nonsense like that, and I my nonsense. So a lot of the um, ways of being and the language of everydayness is a, is a cover-up for the finitude of our existence, for authentic being toward death, the, the, for the existential fact that um, we can, um, that death is certain and it can happen at any moment. It's, it's always it's always impending, it's always threatening. And that gets covered over. Well, it, it's that that is brought right into the foreground, I think, by various forms of emotional trauma. That is not only our own finitude, but the finitude of everyone we love. And the finitude of our power to protect and to forecast what is going to happen to us and those we love. All these aspects of our human limitedness, one or another of these aspects is forced upon us by an experience of emotional trauma. So all of the uh, customary ways of being and ways of speaking that characterize everydayness become useless. They become meaningful because Heidegger didn't use the term defensive function, but essentially the defensive function has been has failed. And one is face to face with what all what these everyday ways of being are attempting to evade. Now I've lost my train of thought. What am I trying to explain? Uh, I, I'll, I'll jump oh, I know, I know. I'm okay. trying to get back to uncanniness. Yeah. So, uh, in, in virtue of this sort of um, transformation that's brought about by trauma, we feel very singularized with respect to other people. And I talk in my book about the dichotomy between the normals and the traumatized ones. We feel the traumatized person typically feels very singularized, very alienated, very and isolated from others, uh, because the, the everyday world no longer works for the traumatized person. The everyday ways of being no longer work for the traumatized person. So it's this um, this alienation and estrangement that I think is captured by Heidegger's concept of uncanniness, and I think it kind of relates to. Freud, because when, when when we feel uncanny, then our experiences have a kind of otherworldly quality to them, whether, whether uh, otherworldly in the sense of feeling like one comes from another planet, or otherworldly in the sense of supernatural, but otherworldly outside the realm of normal everydayness, which can be captured by a number of metaphors, including the supernatural. Yeah, that's how that, that's how it, how it relates Heidegger's uncanniness to Freud's uncanniness. Uh huh. I, I was very struck as you were speaking with the idea of the corpse being a thing. Yeah, uh, which is a big thing for Heidegger, the issue of thing mm-hmm. and not. Yeah. Thing. and I wondered whether uh, um, something about you know, and I'm I'm also remembering F- Freud talking about the tales of Hoffman and the doll that's. Uh, that's sort of alive but not alive, and I'm wondering mm-hmm. <clears throat> whether there's something about that aspect of reality that the that the corpse is a thing 
yeah. that gets suffused in the traumatized person's uh, experience, that that's part of what makes them so isolated because they're now in the world of the thing. Uh, which yeah, is, I think that's which that, uncanny. Makes, that makes sense to me. It, it, it also bears a relationship to uh, Lacan's concept of the real. Mm-hmm. Right. Just like the... The, the kind of the exposure to the mm, maybe unassimilated things that have existence or something like that. Right, right. Very interesting. Um, well, uh, there. I, I seem to remember. I'm going back to the. Well, let's see. We can talk a bit. Do you have a question? Oh, okay. Um, all right. I'll, I have a question that's headed this way. Comfort in everydayness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh, I, I thoroughly agree with you that we are in a situation where we cannot recover from the trauma of our finitude. It's, mm-hmm. it's, an, it's an ever-present uh, condition of, a, of human life. Mm-hmm. Um but I find comfort in everydayness. Uh, yeah. Heidegger uh, seems That's to... That's why Heidegger calls them the tranquilizing illusions of everydayness. They're comforting. <laughs> They're very comforting. <laughs> um, so, uh, and he refers to them as the... He seems to connect everydayness with the they, which is right. kind of neg- but- a very negative... Uh, take on everydayness uh, because the they, as I think you've mentioned, is a sort of uh, almost a super ego uh, relationship to one's. Not exactly. Well, sorry, but not well, exactly. Just in the it's, sense that one is trying call, to achieve a, a sort of a, a generalized norm. Right. What I call conventional, uh, a conventional form of interpretedness. Right. Um, so I, I guess my quest here in this question is to uh, perhaps salvage something of everydayness. So uh, um, I remember a very good friend of my family's who was uh, actually the son of the great Yiddish writer Shalom Aleichem. Uh, mm-hmm. He was a painter, and he actually taught Bob Dylan painting. Um, mm-hmm. And he was a very brilliant thinker. And I always remember my mother telling me that he would often say, People need the superficial. Uh, mm-hmm. And it seems to me that those are very true words. And I also think that the superficial, like a dream, hides the depth we cannot or will not see. So I mm-hmm. use as an example um, the song Alice Blue Gown, which is just about a young girl remembering a pretty dress she used to wear. But the depth of feeling that that song evokes is, is not superficial. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's also, in my mind, uh, Didier Anzieu, who suggests that psychic skin is the ego and the interior, indeed that it uh, that the surface is the depth. So I wanted to know what your thoughts were about that, my <laughs> attitude about everydayness. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, I think you're attitude. right. Everydayness is, is comforting, and that's why human beings want to stay in it as much as they can. You know, um, but is that necessarily inauthentic to be in certain? Well, for Heidegger, it's inauthentic. Days? What? Sorry. For Heidegger, it's inauthentic because it is 
Yeah, but let's, let's be careful about how we use the word authentic and inauthentic because it has meanings in our culture that it didn't, that, that the term does not have for Heidegger. Mm. The, the German word that gets translated as authenticity is Eigentlichkeit. Eigentlichkeit. It doesn't mean genuineness. It means ownedness. So authentic, authentic, authenticity is an owning up. It's an owning up to finitude, being toward death, and it's an owning up to our accountability to ourselves for our choices and decision-making. So that's what Heidegger means, our authenticity. doesn't mean genuineness. Right? Seeking the comfort of uh, everydayness can be, feel very genuine. Feels, You know what I mean? Yeah. But, it's, but it, it, it entails a disowning or evading of a... Uh, central dimension of our existing, namely its finitude. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now, here's something. Now, there's a, there's a complication in Heidegger when it comes to this because it, it has to do with his use of the term falling or fallenness. Mm-hmm. And by the way, this is this is where his uh, where I think that that is Catholicism mm-hmm. can be found. Not not so much in his concept of existential guilt. But in his concept of falling or fallenness. Uh, so fallenness, and it has a different quality to it depending on whether you're reading, uh, the first division of being in time or the second division of being in time. In the first division of being in time, where he's talking about every day existing, fallenness is what Heidegger calls an existential, that is, it's a, Necessary and universal structure of our of our existing that we can't do without it. We can't not identify with Basman or conventional interpretiveness. And I think so. That's right because uh, there's a whole bunch of ways in which conventional ways of being are essential to our existing. You know, we have linguistic conventions that we all adhere to. If we didn't we would not be able to understand one another. We pretty much agree that when we see a red light, we stop, and when we see a green light, we can go. We don't, you know, step back and try to make an existential choice. You know, do I really want to stop at this light or do I want to go? In a lot of our social, in other words, these are the, Falling, identifying with Basman, with conventional interpretiveness, is an essential part of our being social creatures. Mm-hmm. And that's the way he talks about it in Division 1 of being in time. In Division 2, he talks about falling as an evasion of authentic being toward death and authentic accountability to ourselves. So it has, has an eva- So the meaning changes. It becomes a kind of uh, falling becomes a kind of um, motivated defensive action in Division Two of being in time. So we can't do without it, the way it's described in Division One. But we can do without it, at least on occasion, the way it's described in Division Two. And trauma, I argue, is what plunges is what takes us out of a fallen way of being into a more more authentic way of being. Not of our choosing. It's something that we suffer. Right. Um, I wanted to I wanted to ask you a 
question about um, perhaps a, a more a question of uh, technique. As mm -hmm. I was reading the book, I found myself thinking, um, so what does um, uh, this post-Cartesian psychoanalytic experience look like? I mean, you're really, you know, you have a critique of Freud, um, you know, that sort of goes throughout the book. And yet I wondered, so is the work um, in the consulting room uh, that different? And what further prompts the question is, I, I found myself thinking about the role of interpretation in post-Cartesian mm -hmm. uh, analytic work. Um, and I'm, I'm going to quote you here. You write, um, quote, our being that is covered up in our understanding of it must be laid bare, unconcealed, by means of interpretation of that understanding. And I know you're not talking right. about the clinical encounter here, but but yet. And then you That's write, actually Heidegger. Yes, yes, but it seems, well, anyway, here, I'll, I'll finish up the quote and we can discuss. Mm -hmm. um, Such unconcealing need not require aggressivity on the part of the inquirer who can listen in for the being of what has been understood and thereby let Dasein interpret itself. Um, I found myself just wondering, so what, what happens in the consulting room, um, the post-Cartesian consulting room that would be different, let's say, from um, what we might imagine would be going on in the Freudian consulting room, the relational consulting mm -hmm. room, um, et cetera. Can you, can you talk to us about that? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, uh, actually, could, could you hold on a second? For some reason, my door just opened. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Get the door. It's uncanny. It is uncanny. <laughs> Who's knocking? <laughs> Who's at the door? <laughs> Sorry, I must not have closed it that before. Um, well, I think I'll give a partial answer to that question by saying that I think that what, what we call post-Cartesian psychoanalysis or our phenomenological contextualist perspective, I believe is different from other psychoanalytic perspectives in the following way. Mm -hmm. um, ours, with one exception that I'll get to, ours is not a content theory. That is, we do not prescribe any universal contents of experience. Almost every other psychoanalytic theory does that. Mm -hmm. You know, Freud, the universality, the Oedipus complex, right. Melanie Klein, the the uh, parents schizo in depressive positions, Jung, the architects of, architects of the collective unconscious, and so on. Uh, almost every other psychoanalytic theory postulates universal contents of experience, and those become the focus of interpretive work, because they're presumed to, since they're universal, they're presumed to characterize or be central to the emotional worlds of everyone. We don't do that. Um, we think that uh, every emotional world is unique and derives from each person's unique intersubjective history. So we, we don't have a pre-established set of universal contents that we're wanting to get to with interpretations. Mm -hmm. uh, either, either interpretations of the contents or interpretations of defenses against the contents. We, we don't have any universal contents that the focus of our interpretive work. Um, we're interested in uh, the unveiling and um, 
transformation of individual emotional worlds in all of their uniqueness, idiosyncrasy, idiosyncrasy, and context embeddedness. So the interpretive work is focused on emotional experience and how it's organized and the context in which it becomes so organized. The um, So another way of putting that is that we're aiming at an interpretive unveiling of these pre-reflective organizing principles that are high, unique, highly individualized, and a product of each individual's unique intersubjective history, and which will show up in the interplay between the emotional world of the patient and the and the emotional world of the analyst. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's it's an attempt at a non-doctrinal mm-hmm. concept of interpretive work. Now, I think that the one exception is with regard to universal content mm-hmm. has to do with the with um, the traumatizing aspects of human finitude itself, mm-hmm. which none of us can escape. Mm-hmm. Right. We can't. We can't live forever. We can't have it all. <laughs> we we we're, we're we are temporally limited. We are our knowledge and understanding is limited. Oh. Our our power to protect is limited. There are so many ways in which we are limited. Infinitude for me covers all of these different dimensions of limitedness that mm-hmm. can become a source of emotional trauma. Mm-hmm. Right, coming to terms with uh, the the perpetual lack. Mm-hmm that we're always up against. Yeah. By the way, you haven't mentioned this, but one of the ways in which I differ from Heidegger and have tried to expand upon Heidegger mm-hmm. is that I think um, being toward loss is always a component of being toward death. That to, to me, may, may even be more important than death proper. Mm-hmm. Because there's nothing that drives home our human limitedness than our powerlessness to protect those we love. Right. Right. Here we go. Josie has a a question for you. Uh, Mm -hmm. Related to what you're just uh, being towards loss, which I, 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 although I haven't said anything about it, I did very much note it when I was reading it and agreed very Mm -hmm. much with you about that. Um, So you recently posted on your blog, which I think is related, a very beautiful poem by Denise Levitov. Mm-hmm. When grief finds a home, which I found oh, yeah. so um, containing of what you're talking about, mm-hmm. um, the poem depicts grief as a homeless dog that the poet realizes should be her dog, not one excluded mm-hmm. from the home asking for right. his bone. And you uh, comment that the poem saying something important about our relationship to grief and our need to make grief our own in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Beyond that, I wanted to say you also have a couple of your own very beautiful poems in this book. And mm-hmm. Heidegger also has a series of very beautiful poems uh, that are very much like haiku in, in, in quality. Uh, mm-hmm. I wonder if you think, uh, well, I, should, I didn't ask this other question about resoluteness, which is something uh, connected, I think, to uh, Heidegger's idea of guilt. Um, I didn't hear that. Uh, what? We didn't talk about resoluteness, which I, oh, think, resoluteness. Which yeah. I think is connected uh, to Heidegger's idea about guilt. Uh, right. You talk about um, that this exploration you've been engaged in since you had this terrible loss 
um, mm-hmm. is part of your resoluteness. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I, I, but I wondered if you, uh, if you think that making art, that is things like poems or other things that are smaller mm-hmm. than we are, that can be held and examined and viewed, and which contain an amalgam of abstractions of our experience, mm-hmm. can be considered a form of resoluteness, a way to remain authentic and yet bear what cannot really be born. Absolutely. That's an uncharacteristically short answer. (laughs) Right? What did I do? Absolutely. (laughs) You've given him something to think about. (laughs) Uh, So since you mentioned that uh, blog, um, you're alluding to another very important idea, I think, that um, has to do with trauma and how to work with trauma clinically. Uh-huh. And it also relates to how what post-Cartesian psychoanalysis has to offer existential philosophy, namely our concept of a relational home. Mm-hmm. That is where, the, in the case of analysis, that in the approach to trauma, the analyst wants to become a, a context of human understanding, a context of emotional understanding. That's what we mean by a relational home in which the patient's experience of the unbearable can be better born mm-hmm. and the and experience of the unsayable can begin to be said. Yes. Um, and, um, and I think I say this in the, one of the chapters, yeah, the chapter on worlds apart on dissociation, traumatic temporality. The concept of uh, trauma recovery is an oxymoron. Mm-hmm. Yes. Once you own up to human finitude <laughs> and as being what's disclosed in experiences of emotional trauma, there's no there's no recovering from uh, human finitude, from the impact of human finitude. There's no curing of human finitude. We, we, we can't be cured of our existential vulnerability. It's, it's part of it constitutes our, our way of existing, our way of being. But what we can do is find a relational home for the traumatizing aspect of our finitude, and that's what I think uh, analytic work wants to provide. And the, the kind of attitude or comportment that goes along with that therapeutic comportment is what I call emotional dwelling. And it's, it's sort of the opposite of what people do naturally. You know, normally... Again, this, here's, a, here's a good example of everydayness. In the mode of everydayness, when we're faced with a traumatized person, we try to comfort, we try to offer reassurance, we might offer nameless platitudes, as people often do. This, this is the opposite of emotional dwelling. In emotional dwelling, we meet the person's experience of traumatization head on, and we try to use language with that person that captures it in, a, in, in the most evocative and vivid way possible. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. What does that, can you, um, what does that look like? Well, I can tell you, are, are you allowed to have profanity in your interview? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Please. Okay. So, here, we look for it. <laughs> here's a, we draw here's it a story. <laughs> Here's a story that I often tell to illustrate. It's actually a personal story rather than a therapeutic story, but they're, they're, it's, it's kind of a model for 
the therapeutic compartment toward emotional trauma, emotional dwelling. Uh, my dad had a terrible trauma when he was 10 years old. He was sitting in a classroom, and the kid in front of him was horsing around. The teacher threw a book at the kid. The kid ducked, and the, and the, the book took my dad's eye out right on the spot. <laughs> and he lived in terror of blindness for the rest of his life because of that. And I grew up in that atmosphere mm -hmm. of terror of blindness. Mm -hmm. Well, shoot ahead 60 years, and he's having cataract surgery on his remaining eye. Uh, and I went to visit him just before the surgery, and he was a total mess. He was fragmented. He was in a traumatized state. He was ashamed of being in a traumatized state. And my other family members were trying to reassure him, you know. I'm sure it'll be okay. I'm sure it'll be fine. It's going to be fine. And that's nonsense. Right. Nobody in a circumstance right. like that. <laughs> right. Nobody. Oh, I, I left out an important detail. My dad had uh, been on uh, glaucoma medication for many decades. And because of this medication, there was a pretty good chance that this surgery could blind him because right. it made, made the optic nerve much more vulnerable to being knocked out by the surgery. So I had gone through my own personal trauma by then and knew that he, the last thing he needed were, were, uh, was uh, empty reassurances and platitudes. And so I said to him, Dad, you have been terrified of being blinded ever since you were a little boy. And there's a good chance that this surgery is going to blind you. You are going to be a fucking maniac until you find out whether the surgery blinds you or not. You're going to be psychotic. You're going to be climbing the walls. Mm -hmm. So in response to that, he almost literally cohesed right before my eyes. And, uh, we had the two or three martinis, this was our habit. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and the surgery, by the way, did not blind him. But that, that's a good example of emotional dwelling. So I told this story to a supervisee of mine once, and she began to tell all of her patients that they were going to be fucking maniacs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I really so appreciate that story, and I appreciate your point of view about that, which I really feel is so important. Mm -hmm. uh, it is just and so Here's another quick example. Yeah. Uh, when I lost my late wife, it was 23 years ago now, um, the only person who could really dwell with me in, in the magnitude of the trauma was my friend George Atwood, who lost his mother when he was uh, eight years old. And he said to me in his inimitable way, he said, uh, you are you on a train to nowhere, he said. Mm. Mm. You are a destroyed human being. <laughs> right. And, and he was right. He captured the phenomenology of my statement without backing away from it. most people will back away right. even even therapists and analysts yeah yeah often that's a mm -hmm. yeah absolutely um bob i think that uh, we have to um, we're enjoying speaking to you so much that we've uh, well gone over our 50 minute 
<laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, we, uh, we don't, we don't want to, we don't let you go. You have an amazing voice. Do you do, uh, <laughs> you should be yeah. doing voiceovers. I've been thinking the whole time. I was like, wow, this guy's got such a good voice. You could, you could be telling us anything. I was just like, what a great voice. <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah um it's been terrific talking to you and um, well, it's been a pleasure you, you guys came up with some really good questions yeah we we uh you, you expanded on things um for us i think and uh it's it's been terrific um so um we want to thank you for coming and uh and being here i want to thank josie oppenheim for oh. taking time at it's a blizzard here in new york city for coming oh. all the way to brooklyn from manhattan <laughs> she did. She made it over the bridge. <laughs> well, it was very much my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. So it um, my pleasure too. Keep uh -huh. keep us keep us posted if uh, you know with other publications that are forthcoming. It sounds like you have a bunch in the pipeline, and um, we would be happy, uh, of course, to to speak to you again. So um, to the listening audience, this is um, your host Tracy Morgan signing off. Until next time. <laughs>